Welcome to the Into the Wild podcast, where we will be interviewing outdoor junkies like ourselves about their experiences in nature. We hope to use this platform to continue learning and growing as both individuals and as an organization. We hope that you will accompany us on this journey of understanding the thrill others seek in the outdoors, the incredible memories and learning opportunities that can come from suffering experiences, and how the conversations we have can begin to make the outdoors a more just and equitable space for all people. This episode, we will be talking with Charlie Engel, an ultramarathon runner, author, recovering alcohol and cocaine addict, and motivational speaker. While Charlie has run 4,500 miles through the Sahara Desert, lived 16 months in federal prison, and run the equivalent of 172 marathons in a row, he considers his 28 years of sobriety one of his biggest feats yet. Today, we will be talking about his strategies and setbacks with mental health, his incredible record-breaking expeditions, getting comfortable with the uncomfortable, and how risk-taking and physical exercise can help you cope with your own struggles in life. Into the Wild leaders, Kate, Michael, and myself, Jules, feel so lucky to have had the opportunity to interview Charlie and learn more about his life story and how he became the influential man he is today. Hello. Hi. Hi. How's it going? Good. Thank you so much for coming today. Wow. My pleasure. All right. So how do we do this? Lead the way. Okay, cool. So basically, Kate's going to start the conversation. That's great. And, and needless to say, I know, I know you know this, there's nothing off limits, especially when it has to do with, you know, addiction or any of the things that have happened in my life. You're not going to offend me by asking me some, why in the world would you do that kind of a question or something like, so if it comes to you and you want to ask, then just ask it. Perfect. Well, thank right. you so much. We are really excited to get to talk to you today. But my first question just involves addiction. Unfortunately, addiction is super prevalent on all college campuses. I know that our university has struggled, especially throughout the past year, with many instances of addiction. So I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit or share a little bit about your college experience. And obviously, it was a little bit different from other people's and kind of just walk us through that experience that you had? Yeah, I really appreciate that question, Kate. And it, I was thinking about it earlier and I do talk about this once in a while, but like taking even a smaller step back, you know, high school for me was, I was an overachiever. <laughs> and I think actually I can say confidently after all these years, I've gone to reunions and stuff. And in general, I think people, I was well-liked, you know, so even though I did well, I wasn't that guy that like did well and people like resented somehow. So my point of all that is though, I get accepted to UNC Chapel Hill and I go to school and when I get there, obviously I'm, I'm joking when I say this, but like I fully expected there to be a banner on my dorm that said, you know, welcome Charlie. We're so glad you're here because you're so awesome. I, I'm, I'm joking of course, but I had that high school experience then, of course, it just never dawned on me that the 4,000 other freshmen that I was coming to Carolina with all had the same resume or better. What I found out was that I was pretty average <laughs> and I naturally started to look for other ways to stand out. And one of those ways was the drinking age was still 18 uh, back then. All of a sudden, I, what I become known for is like, I, I may not be an All-American in you know, basketball or football anymore, but I am an All-American drinker. 
genetically speaking, you know, I'm a fourth generation alcoholic addict. You know, a lot of people in my family have struggled with, in particular, alcohol. But I didn't understand at that point any of the genetics. Things slowly began to pick up steam for me. And I noticed also cocaine was like ubiquitous on campus. It probably still is, but the 1980s were truly sort of the cocaine decade in this country. And so it wasn't, I didn't see it as something that I was doing that was like wild and crazy necessarily. It was just like there. The difference is for me, someone predisposed to addiction, both genetically and for a variety of reasons. My friends who I'm partying with, most of them are going to bed at two or three o'clock because they have a class the next day and they're actually going to go to bed and get up and go to class. That didn't happen for me. You know, I slowly but surely started to not go to class. I spent three years essentially just barely getting past 30 hours of classes. And I ultimately tanked. And the thing that wasn't there that I think is now, if you really want to reach out somewhere on campus to get help, and there's probably a number you can call. There's probably... Um, social services of some type. That didn't exist when I was in college. So one positive move is that there is more access that isn't going to have to be embarrassing or, I mean, frankly, anybody who's drinking that much has already embarrassed themselves plenty, so they shouldn't be worrying about it. You know, Mm -hmm. everybody around me knew I had an issue and I certainly wasn't the only one and then I'll, I'll leave it this final thing. I was ashamed, of course, of my behavior, but you can really, as you know, you can get lost in college and everybody's busy and social and you're doing your thing. And when somebody just sort of slides off into the dark corners, you don't always notice that. It's just like, hey, what happened to so-and-so? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen him for a while. A lot of times that person has fallen into a, a pit kind of of their own making. It can be really hard. Thank you so much for sharing. We really appreciated everything that you had to say. So from there, I'm curious how you think that we can address some of the mental health challenges that a lot of people face. Obviously, stress is a really big factor. And I know that you touched upon the increase in social services that we have on campus to help people with their mental health challenges that they might have. But how do you think that that could be improved even further um, in terms of maybe addiction or just mental health in general? Yeah. Well, first of all, the good news is I do actually believe (laughs) that the stigma attached to uh, struggling with addiction isn't what it used to be. In a general sense, there is an acceptance and a realization that this is like any other disease. It's hard because no, when you guys age in particular, nobody wants to be disloyal to their friends, right? So there's a complicated dance that happens when you see a person that you know is struggling. What do you do? Like, what are you going to do? Call their parents, but you risk alienating that person or losing them as a friend or having them say, you know, piss off. And that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. I will, I will tell you, take another quick step back. I had a, I was in fraternity in college and a fraternity brother of mine literally called my father (laughs) and said, you need to come get Charlie because he's in trouble. 
things were coming to an end for me. Like I, you can't be living in a dorm or a fraternity or whatever if you're not actually attending class. So the time was coming for me anyway. I do think that today, the reduction in stigma, the learning the tools, and as a person, encouraging people to privately say, say something. If it's a friend of yours, you know what? We'd all, we'll all feel better if you lose a friend for a short period of time because they're pissed off at you because you like said, hey, seems like you might be drinking a little too much these days. They might go away for a little while, but ultimately you'll feel better about that than if they overdose or if they get kicked out of school or whatever. And I think it takes a lot of nerve and honesty and guts to do that. And it, and it you know, you have to examine your own motives in any situation and find a way to communicate with that person. That person knows it. <laughs> when I speak to an audience, first thing I always say, you're either one of two categories. You either are an addict or you know someone who's an addict or who has struggled with addiction. Nobody escapes it. There's no part of our society that isn't touched by addiction and alcoholism. I think the understanding and the recognition of that is, is where we start and then destigmatizing. Definitely. I know that the experiences that you had were definitely very challenging and very formative, clearly, in um, everything that you've done thus far. So I'm just curious if if you had known what you know now when you were in college, would you have done anything differently? And if you had, what would you have done? I think there's a certain amount of acceptance that has to come with anything that falls into the disease category. So sure, I absolutely look back. My grandfather had been the track coach at Carolina for 40 years, but he died when I was when I was young. And so I, I have always said that if I could do one thing differently, I would have gone to Carolina and I would have run. I would have joined the track team because even if I wasn't talented enough to actually like be a scoring runner, you know, for the most part, you can be on the track or cross country team if you're a runner and you actually want to go be part of it. But the real point I would make, and this is the real answer to your question is I had no choice. <laughs> In other words, my destiny genetically speaking, and a lot of other ways was almost certainly that I was going to be an addict. When from the very beginning, when I drank, I drank to get drunk. I actually look at it as if my choices only mattered once I decided I don't want to live like this. And it took me a long time to get there. You know, there was a lot of denial. When I left college, you know, I began this, this long pattern of repeating the same thing over and over, moving to a new city, getting a good job, being the top salesperson, dating a nice girl, six months of fantastic. And then I'd like, ah, you know, I'm doing great. I, I should, I can have a couple of beers to celebrate even though I'd never had two beers in my whole life. If there was beer, I had all of it. <laughs> I never had two beers. And so despite all evidence to the contrary, I would tell myself this time will be different. This time will be different. I accept now that I, not only was I predestined to take the path that I took, but it was the right path for me. Today, I'm clean and sober 28 years. It'll be 29 in July assuming I make it that far. 
And I wouldn't trade it in. I wouldn't take a pill right now or a vaccination that would let me go back and like drink like a normal person or have a different life. You know, the perspective that I've gained through the struggles that I had and the place that I am now, that perspective makes me who I am. My addictive nature, my obsessive qualities are, as my mother used to tell me, they are actually my superpower. My addiction is actually a superpower. Like if I take my energy that I have and, and my passion and I point it towards something that I'm determined to accomplish, I'll get it done. And I don't think if I didn't have that same, if I didn't have that drive that I was actually born with, I don't know what I'd be doing. I think that I was destined to be this person. Acceptance is a much easier path than regret. Yeah, that's a great point. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your icebreaker run and um, more oh, yeah. about your experience with mental health and the outdoors and what you might've learned from interacting with people who've struggled with various forms of mental illness, such as like depression, anxiety, addiction, and just the experience of the icebreaker run in general. Yeah, that's great. So for those um, listening to so the icebreaker run was in 2015. And, and I basically found five other drunk and recovering drug addicts. <laughs> they weren't currently drunk, they were previously drunk addicts actually crossed the United States with me. So the six of us actually ran a relay from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C. And we ran for 24 straight days, 24 hours a day. And as I like to say, I mean, addiction doesn't ever stop. You don't get to have a break. You don't, you know, it's always there under the surface. And so I wanted us to do something that was Continuous. And the purpose of the run was to bring greater attention to the need for mental health services. And I now now I seem like I have a crystal ball, right? I mean, our, our mental health issues in this country right now are off the charts. I mean, partly we were already heading that way and COVID basically poured gasoline on it. To your point, part of what Icebreaker was about too, though, is the need for more physical uh, exercise. And I'm not just one of those, like, oh, you need to get out and exercise. My mantra, in fact, is if you don't feel good, you can't get well. So if you have these other underlying issues, think it's about changing the idea and the stigma around mental health issues. I, frankly, I want to start calling it like mental wellness or mental fitness. The term mental health has, it's not that it's stigmatized so much, but it's sort of like noise, right? It's become blah, 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 your mental health, this mental health, that. Yeah, because it's like so to it, yeah. Exactly. And so people then, they start like, oh, this is going to be another, you know, mental health thing. I'm going to change the channel or I'm going to turn this down. Right. I already know all this. Right. Whatever. And that's, so some of the challenge I think is for you guys is to find creative and clever ways to call it something else. And I don't know what that is yet. I haven't come up to it yet either, but finding a way to re-engage people, get them to actually listen where they don't feel like they're being preached to. Cause that's not, look, life is a freaking education and nobody can take the pain and suffering away. I was given a talk not that long ago, you know, and one of them said, uh, you know, raised their hand and we were having this conversation and she said, like, I just want my kids to have an easier time of it than I did. That's my work. I'm like, why? Like, what do you have against your kids, right? And she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, 
why would you want them to have an easy, did you have an easy time? And she's like, no. I said, you're an accomplice. You're like the CMO of this company. The lessons that you learned along the way, the strength that you gained from the hardships that you faced are the things that have made you who you are. To have the path cleared all the time, if it's always a snowplow where you're just doing nothing but offering up smooth ground all the time, like that's a mistake. And even kids don't want that. I mean, not really. It, and it's not, it's not about consequences or whatever, but I think that mental health, mental wellness begins with understanding that the sky isn't falling just because there's hard times. And that in fact, if you can embrace that and even welcome it at times that, you know, it will serve you extremely well in the long term. Yeah, I think it's interesting. We've had a lot of conversations recently about the times when we've all learned the most is when we've had to face a lot of adversity and when things mm -hmm. come up that we don't expect are, or are super challenging in the moment, those are the times that we have learned the most and probably grown the most and brought those experiences with us to where we are today. So thank you for touching on that. Um, I think where I want to take this next question is it's so easy to focus on people's like successes and joys in life, but like what people don't talk about a lot is the struggle and what we've already talked about before, the importance of the struggle and finding comfort in the uncomfortable and clearly you seek that. So how do you set these goals for yourself and what pushes you to do these things and how can we push ourselves mentally to mm. do obviously not things that maybe you do, but just push <laughs> ourselves outside of our comfort zone. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a perfect question. And, and look, I, I freely admit like during my years, you know, from, from the time I was basically 18 to 29, you know, I wasn't, it's not like I drank and did drugs all the time. I would, I would have this two or three month period of time where it'd be terrible. And then I would say, I'm never doing that again. And I'd clean my act up and I would run. Running, running was kind of, you know, part of that. But I somehow I learned early on that, um, and maybe it was from my very first sponsor in AA. He taught me that this one very simple lesson, and that is uh, to, to keep it, you have to give it away. He basically talks about service. And this past year, again, is the greatest example of it. And I've said it a thousand times in this past year. If you're struggling, if you're stuck, if you feel like you don't know what to do, then find someone else to help get through that. <laughs> because that will get you out of yourself. It will help show you the path. So sometimes that energy is just a matter of encouraging others or inviting them to come out for a run with me or doing something. I think the pressure, like for people your age in particular, is you feel like you need to like solve some massive problem for a huge number of people or be part of some nonprofit that changes the world. And, and what's lost in that is the humanity of just simply helping another person and not needing a big pat on the back for it or a even a thank you. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes it's a matter of just doing something for the purpose of being kind. Um, you guys know, I think, so when I did my run across the Sahara Desert, you know, years back, you know, I ran almost 5,000 miles across the Sahara. Matt Damon was my partner in this project. And, you know, 
we made a film together running the Sahara. And I mean, I basically ran two marathons every single day for 111 consecutive days without taking a day off. And the, the physical legacy of that was, was pretty cool. But the, the real legacy of it was the creation of H2O Africa. And uh, I raised about $6 million for that nonprofit just during the run and shortly thereafter. We ultimately ended up taking that and turning it into what is today known as water.org. And water.org is the world's largest clean water nonprofit. My point of telling that story is this. You may think that your idea is crazy or wacky or outlandish or what's the point. The point is you don't know what's going to come from it. (laughs) Don't be afraid to fail. I mean, it really is that simple. Who cares? 2008, I tried to set a new record for the fastest run across the United States. And to do it, I needed to run 70 miles every day for 45 consecutive days. And day by day 18, I had like, I had five different injuries. I was a disaster. And I, I literally, medically, I had to stop. And I had, you know, United Way was my partner. And like, I had hundreds of thousands of people watching and I'm supposed to go buy all of these schools and meet with special needs kids and do all this stuff. And the, the risk of taking on a big project is great. And, and the, the risk of failure and what that means, um, I thought, well, at the time uh, that this is terrible, it turned out to be strangely one of the best things that ever happened to me because I got so much compassion. I got, I got, once I really started to struggle and I shared that struggle with other people, <laughs> the number of people contacting me and sending me encouraging messages and like doing all that, like quadrupled over the people who were just like going, yay, you're doing a good job, you know, way to go. Like, I mean, it's weird, it's human nature. We don't, it's not that we're not pulling for other people, but we, we sort of want to see people struggle and then find a way to pull through that. Yeah, because it's like relatable. Exactly. Struggle is the only thing that's relatable. Yeah. That's such a good point, Jules. So, Charlie, your career in running challenges have taken you all across the globe, as we know. Would you be able to touch a little bit on some of the experiences and relationships that have come about from your various expeditions and also how you feel it is best to approach all the new places you go and embrace their unique cultures and ways of life? Yeah, I love that question. You know, so part of the thing that, you know, and Jules, you certainly know this about me and you guys, if you've done any research, you know, I mean, I am a, I'm not nearly as much a runner as I am a uh, cultural explorer. Like I don't, I don't even like to run that much. (laughs) People would assume that I like love running. I do love to run and I, I enjoy all that. But what I enjoy is where running takes me and, and for my mental health and for like, I've taken that power of addiction and I've, and I've said, okay, you know, I want to experience other cultures and I want to see other countries and I want to see it not from the back of a tour bus or in a car. I want to see it from like the soles of my feet. When you travel, it's to experience somebody else's culture, not to force your culture on them. (laughs) And too many Americans, of course, travel to other countries and they're like, well, you know, 
I'm not eating that. We just get go somewhere that culturally is challenging. And maybe you don't speak the language and you're going to have to find a way and, and adapt to the way they do things. You know, that's the, that's the advice that I give. Challenge yourself with travel. I'll tell you this, okay, here's the greatest thing that I, I think that I ever, like, that I try to encourage people to do. Like, even if you're, if you go to Africa or you go to South America or you go some really remote place, even if you're in a car, going to these places, get out of the car a quarter of a mile before you go into the village and walk into that village or run into it or be on foot because most of the world is on foot, right? Most of the world doesn't have the advantages that we have. Sure, if you're in Europe or some places, but in general, the vast majority of Africa, even a lot of parts of Asia and certainly South America, you know, things like a car, that's like total luxury. So if you're going to be in a remote area, you know, walk into some village with your backpack on and see how you're greeted and treated in comparison to if you drive in in the Toyota, you know, Land Cruiser. I think almost everyone, if you get a chance to take a breath, put your phone down and spend some time in a place like that, it'll absolutely change your life. So, I mean, that's, that's my number one piece of advice is the next, especially after what we've all been through, the next time you get to travel somewhere, pick somewhere that's remote and interesting and, and different. I kind of have a final question. So in one of your interviews, you were talking about how you like seek experiences that make you just want to quit. And I'm wondering how you realized that that was the feeling that you wanted to get out of all of the things that you do. Um, and what have you yeah. learned from those experiences, if anything? Yeah. So I would almost, I'm going to do the famous, uh, I'm going to answer a question with a question. So um, what's the, what year are you? are you? I'm a junior. Or well, so you're a junior. Okay. So you've actually even been like in class in <laughs> at, at, at college yeah. as opposed to online, right? Okay. So <clears throat> You could probably right off the top of your head, think of the hardest class that you've had so far in college, right? I mean, yes. there's probably one that stands out, right? I mean, right now. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, and has there been a time during this class already where um, you've actually sat, you've questioned whether or not you're actually going to be able to do it? Like, am I really going to be able to, like, whether it's passing a test or getting through the class, I mean, you seem very smart. So I'm sure you'll, I'm sure you'll pass the class, but, um, have you had that feeling though? Like, yeah, definitely questioning whether or not I have what it takes to complete the class. And if I'm qualified to even be in it, that's something that I've been continuing to question, but for sure understand. Okay. So like, I got goosebumps. All right. So here's why that is (laughs) the only class you're going to remember. Like, from this semester. It doesn't mean you won't remember other classes or whatever, but it's so, these experiences that we have in life are so powerful and people get so caught up in the finish line or I don't know, whatever it might be that we do forget. And that's why for me, like I'm gonna go run this race Badwater that I told you about Mm -hmm. in two months. I know 100% there's going to be more than one point during that race where I'm thinking to myself, why did I think this was a good idea? Yeah. Like, yeah. just like, just like you were saying, why did I take this class? 
you know, why did I think maybe it's a requirement, but whatever, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, and so consequently, but that moment when I want to quit, when I want desperately to quit and my body is saying, I can't keep doing this. And my mind is agreeing. That's the moment I actually want to get to because all my life experiences have, have led me to that point and to the recognition and, and here's, I think, the biggest point that I could even make, maybe, maybe even in the whole podcast, we all tend to make bad decisions when we're at a really low point. It's human nature, right? Something's yeah. just happened. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a relationship you're in, uh, a job you have, a class you're taking, whatever it is, you know, we hit that bottom. And what we say to ourselves is, it's going to feel just like this. For forever, for the rest of the time I'm in this class, I'm going to have that feeling for the rest of the time I'm in this race, or I'm dating this person, like it's always going to be like this, but it's not, <laughs> it's not, but we, we experience tells us that if we just keep moving and ultimately like when you pass that class, that's not what you're going to remember. What you're going to remember is the struggle that you had doing it. And it will ultimately end up being the thing, like one of those college experiences that you will remember for the rest of your life. Whereas you won't, you want to actually remember the easy A. You just won't. I mean, you might remember having taken the class or whatever, yeah. and you'll be grateful that it helped your GPA. But ultimately, in the scheme of things, it's fairly irrelevant. It's, it's those hard things. So I think that would be the, you know, the final sort of thought as I tell people, don't quit, you know, the highs in life and, and the lows, they're not real. Like they don't last, the, the highs don't last long enough and the lows seem like they last too long. But most of the time, if we just get a good night's sleep, we go out for a walk, we take a break, maybe you have a conversation with a friend and actually admit, I'm afraid that I can't do this. Like, it's like, whew, man, just all the, all the stress of that. And you guys are under huge stress. You know, you got to look good. You got to, you know, you got family pressure. What, I don't know your, all of that about your lives, but in general, we all have the same pressures. You know, we're trying to please other people while also trying to figure out who the hell we are. <laughs> and as you can tell at 58 years old, I'm basically still on that journey. So Anybody who tells you that they've figured it out completely probably has a pretty freaking boring life. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for hey. taking this hour to talk to us. We absolutely, of course. I loved meeting you. I'm so, <laughs> I was researching all about you before and I was so excited to get to have a conversation with you. And it was really cool to hear yeah. what you had to say. So thank you so much. Yeah, it was really my pleasure. You guys are great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and any so any time, if just continue being seekers, you know, it's it's that's what we need is is you know people that are they're always seeking more experiences and more you know more answers. And that's, I mean, when you and I met, Jules, obviously that was the epitome of. Uh, I should brag about you for a second. Like when I saw you, you know, there was. There were questions in your eyes about what am I doing here? Why am I doing this thing? And uh, will I survive? And, yeah. You know, and uh, I would I would wager that it um, is, you know, a highlight experience. 
Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Charlie. I think we all learned a lot from your story, um, having to do with perseverance, the struggle with mental health, addiction, and just strategies for promoting mental wellness and countering mental health issues. Um, and we're really grateful to have you on the podcast and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Truly my pleasure. Thank you all for listening. We can't wait to continue bringing you more content. Stay tuned for our next episode that will be announced in our weekly emails. Until then, get up, get out, and get wild.